Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off last time. And Richard, you had a question. I did. Um, One of the things that I was interested in as it related to Hiram Page is that he had what he thought to be a pretty miraculous experience. How does he receive Doctrine and Covenants section 28? How does he receive that, that revelation? That's a great question because... If you think about how much time he's invested in this, I mean, it's apparently months. Plus, not only does he feel like they're true revelations, essentially every single person he knows and cares about thinks that they're true revelations. So think about that. That now you not you don't just have the, the 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 sheer belief of oh I think that what that angel was telling me was true even though he was some false angel, right? You have the weight of the societal pressure on you now because every single person in your family, extended family, and every friend you have all think you were receiving true revelations. Think about the humility that it would take to go to those same people and say, actually, it was all from Satan. That is... Yeah, that's why I was wondering about that. Like, what kind of person would that... Like, how... How would I respond in that circumstance I mean, or situation? I, and I think that that's that. There are a couple of things, right? There's the there's the action itself, and then there's the fallout from the action. I mean, I think we all know people who have stopped coming to church not so much because of a difference in doctrine or belief, but because something happened that was so embarrassing to them that they just felt like they couldn't come to church anymore, and. Um, you know, they didn't want to be judged. and I mean, if you're Hiram Page, and for months you've been writing revelations that you thought were from God, and you've been passing them around, and people think that they're from God, and suddenly they're not really from God? I can only imagine how, how uh, difficult that was. But by what sources we have, it appears that he handles this chastisement from God very well. They burn the revelations. They um, uh, uh, will, at the conference meeting, uh, again, according to some sources, burn the revelation. And according to Emer Harris, who's Martin Harris's brother, they'll actually take his stone, the stone he'd received these revelations on, and, and fairly symbolically, they will crush it. They'll, they'll crush it to pieces so that the stone doesn't even exist anymore. And so... Um, we don't have, you know, unfortunately the historian in me is like, oh, I wish we hadn't burned those, you know, because I'd love to see what these false revelations were. We, we have some insight on them, that they appear to be contradicting DNC 20, uh, that they clearly outline where the city of Zion is going to be. Um, but there's a lot of them, according to Ezra Booth. That's not just like four of them. So Doctrine Covenant Section 28 chastises Hiram Page, tells him that those uh, revelations he's been receiving from the stoner from Satan and not from God. And Hiram Page apparently accepts that chastisement. He stays in the church. He will leave later 
Later, the entire Whitmer family and extended family, including Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page, were married to uh, some of Peter Whitmer's uh, daughters. Um, they will all, they'll all leave during that Kirtland, Missouri controversy. But Hiram Page stays in the church after this, and, and the church moves on from it. But in that first year, so this, this is the first year. We're not even a year in. You know, the church is, is, is organized in April. By October, you've already had two near schisms in the church. You've already had two times that some of the most leading members of the church have said, no, Joseph is wrong about this and been unwilling to even discuss it. And it's, you know, and sadly, it's, it's, it's not the only time that there's going to be a problem. Um, when they get to Ohio, uh, you know, again, you know, spoiler alert, everyone, uh, we, we, we end up in Ohio. Um, when they get to Ohio, uh, they have a similar problem. There's a woman there who appears to be the opposite of Hiram Page. Hiram Page seems to really be having words appear on his stone. It's just those stone, those words on that stone are from Satan. So there really is a power at work. It's just not God, right? There's a um, a woman in Ohio who at least, now I don't know whether or not this is the case, but she's uh, apparently someone who's a convert from the Campbellite Disciples of Christ movement by the name of Louisa Hubble. And she has claimed to receive multiple revelations and begins teaching them to other people. We don't know a whole lot about them. John Wimmer is going to say, uh, about these days there was a woman by the name of Hubble who professed to be a prophetess of the Lord and professed to have many revelations and knew that the Book of Mormon was true and that she should become a teacher in the Church of Christ. She appeared very sanctimonious and deceived some who were not able to detect her in her hypocrisy. Um, Whitmer further explained, The Lord gave this revelation that the saints might not be deceived. Joseph Smith in his history said that a woman came with great pretensions to revealing commandments, laws, and other curious matters, and that Joseph felt it was necessary to inquire of the Lord. And that's how you get Doctrine and Covenants section 43. That, that phrase, detect her in her hypocrisy, and Joseph saying that she had great pretensions, is a suggestion that she's actually not receiving them, right? Unlike the higher and paid situation where there really are words on that stone and Satan really is deceiving him. In this case, Hubble appears to be using the language of Revelation to deceive. And again, the, you have this happen over and over again in the church. While they're in Kirtland, this will happen again. Um, when uh, the Brewster family will start claiming that their son is receiving by revelation the lost books of Esdras from the Bible. Well, they'll write it down. They'll convince all kinds of people who are really excited. I mean, one of the aspects of being a Mormon is that you believe that there's other scripture. And so when someone says, hey, I've got some other scripture, you're a little bit more enticed than your average you know, Protestant. And eventually they meet with Joseph to show him these revelations, right? And Joseph's response in his journal is, that Brewster boy never had any revelation. Um, so again, it's an example of someone claiming to have received revelations. But actually what they're doing is they're just making stuff up. They're, they're, they're using the language of revelation 
to control people. And, th and that can be very powerful. Um, I, I see it all the time, uh, in fact, where people will be making a claim that is in some ways contrary to what the church is teaching through its prophets, but then buttress that claim by some kind of claim to, you know, well, I felt the Spirit, and, and they're the ones who told me the church is wrong about this. I mean, it, it it's using that language of revelation. At any rate, that's what's going on when Joseph receives D&C 43. And where D&C 21 had said, Joseph is going to be the one who receives revelations for the church, and you're supposed to follow him. D&C 28 made it even more explicit. It's only going to come to the person that God has appointed. It's not just going to come to anybody. It's going to come to the person God has appointed. D&C 43 makes it even more express. For behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that you've received a commandment for a law unto my church through him whom I've appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations of my hand. And this ye shall know assuredly, this is verse 3 of D&C 43, that there is none other appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations until he be taken. But verily, verily, I say unto you that none else shall be appointed unto this gift except it be through him. For if it be taken from him, he shall not have power except to appoint another in his stead. So God's even covering the, well, what if Joseph becomes a fallen prophet? You know, what? If, well, you know, Joseph's a fallen prophet. That's why I had to step up. God's saying here, even if that were the case. If it were the case that Joseph was a fallen prophet, and so you needed to just step into the gap for him, God would give Joseph one last power, and that would be to appoint his successor, who would then have the ability to receive revelation to the church. But it's never going to come from, you know, Bill in accounting, who just so happened to have an angel appear to him that day. That's not how it happens. Uh, verse, uh, verse 5, and this is where God gets as express as he possibly can about revelation for the church. This shall be a law unto you, that ye receive not the teachings of any that shall come before you as revelations or commandments. So when we're talking about revelations, what, what God is revealing to you and commandments, what God expects you to do, if it's not coming from the prophet, it's time to slow your roll on it. It's time, it's time to, to back it down a little bit and say, that's interesting. But if it was necessary and essential to salvation, it wouldn't be coming from Bill and his YouTube channel in his basement. That That's not how God reveals truth. The way God reveals it is through his prophets. doesn't mean that we can't receive truth. We all are entitled to pray to God and receive truth. But that's not how God is going to reveal new truth for the entire church. Verses 6 and 7 go further. And I give this unto you that you may not be deceived, that you may know that they are not of me, for verily I say unto you that he that is ordained of me shall come in at the gate and be ordained, as I have told you before, to teach those revelations which you have received and shall receive through him whom I have appointed. So how can you know if someone claims to have received a revelation for the church, whether or not they've received a revelation for the church? Is their name Russell M. Nelson? And if that's not their name, then they, then they didn't. Right. And, um, you know, we have all kinds of people that uh, uh, lead apostate groups from the church today claiming to have powerful revelations. The entire Denver snuffer apostate movement is based on this. 
that, oh no, you don't understand, I had a special revelation. Well, according to DNC 43, you didn't, actually. Because I didn't see anyone appoint you. I didn't, I didn't see that happen. And in fact, God is commanding me that I should not receive the teachings of any that shall come before you, that you may not be deceived, that you know what is actually the truth. So, so then, by contrast, let's look at an example with Lorenzo Snow. And the early impressions that he has as an early member of the church as it relates to the nature of God and the nature of men. Um, how is that different than what it is that you're talking about there? Well, and like I said, I, I think all of us are entitled to have the mysteries of heaven unfolded to us by revelation. And, and, and what you're talking about is this, this idea that, that God was once a man. Now, to a Mormon, that's like, you know, you know, you know, pass the tricks box. You know, I mean, like to a Mormon. Yeah, I mean, yeah maybe you should contextualize. Yeah, yeah to, to, to a to a Mormon, uh, uh, you know, the idea that God was once a man and that man becomes like God—that's it, it's so well understood that it's, it forms the basis of our understanding of the afterlife. To a Christian, it's the most blasphemous thing that could ever be. If we were doing a podcast called "Why." Mormons are considered blasphemous. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good. That'll idea. be our second podcast. Right. So the next podcast will be why Mormons are blasphemous. But the 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 lead on that, the number one, would be because you think God was meant. Christians believe in something called the aseity of God. That you know, occasionally I'll hear Latter Day Saints say something to the effect of, "Well, I mean, if you believe that God loves His children." And God has all power, then of course God would make us like Him because God, ha you know, God loves us. Why wouldn't God make us like Him? In their discussion with a, with a fellow Christian, the problem is that that Latter Day Saint who's making that argument to a Protestant Christian doesn't realize that to a to a Christian, the very nature of God, what makes God God, is that He's always been God. It's called the aseity of God. God has always been God. There was never a time that God wasn't God. There's no becoming about it. And so while to us, it sounds like a great natural progression, like, oh yeah, you know, God was a man and then God got, you know, became more and then God became an exalted man. Oh, perfect. Well, what does that mean? It means that there was a time that God wasn't God. That is such a... a, a big statement to make that not only are people turning off this podcast right now there are there are latter-day saints who feel uncomfortable with the statement they feel uncomfortable with the idea that there was a time god wasn't god and yet that's what that's what that's what joseph's going to eventually teach so lorenzo snow early on in his in his membership has this very distinct impression come to him that god was once a man now it's a terrifying thing because he really feels like it is from God. But it's the most blasphemous thing that anyone... You, you think having extra scripture from the Book of Mormon is blasphemous? The Catholics have the Apocrypha. This is, this is undercutting the entire basis of monotheistic religion. 
that has claimed that God has always been God, except when he wasn't, which was all the time. And that that is it, it is it, it it's a huge deal. So he does he does tell his sister, he tells his older sister Eliza, everyone knows Eliza or Snow. Um but then he talks about later but he didn't he doesn't talk about it anyone else. He doesn't show up at the next conference meeting and start shouting from the pew, Joseph's a false prophet, I received a revelation about God. In fact, he realizes that if this is true, this is something that's not his place to teach. And so he writes later in life about how he's able, how exultant he is when he first hears Joseph teach the same thing from the pulpit, that God was once a man. And it's like this giant weight is lifted off of him that he's finally able to preach it. The reality is, until truth is revealed for the church by the authorized authority of the church, even if what you are teaching will eventually be true, it's it's not appropriate. It's essentially false doctrine, even if it is, even if it will eventually be true. You know, if, if I have a distinct impression because there's a lot of mosquitoes and it's really hot in Missouri and even air conditioning isn't going to fix it for the city of Zion. If I have a distinct impression that, in fact, Zion's actually going to be, you know, you know, San Diego, California, right? Even if that were eventually going to be true, even if, you know, 200 years from now, God reveals that is the new location of Zion. I'm not saying he will because he won't, but... But even if that were to happen, if I were to start teaching people, well, the real Zion, San Diego, that would be that would be false teaching. That'd be false doctrine, because it's not my place to reveal that to the church, and um, that is an important an important understanding that only the prophet can receive revelation for the entire church. Only the prophet ha is is authorized to set what the doctrine of the church is. We can all have questions and impressions and we can study all kinds of things. God can reveal things to you, but it is the place of the prophet in the Quorum of the Twelve to teach those things to the members of the church if they are things that haven't been revealed yet. Um, so, you know, this this example of Lorenzo Snow is, is the example I think we should all model after. You can absolutely have the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven revealed to you. But if they are revealed to you, then they're for you. They're, they're, not, they're not for every person that's on your, your Insta feed. They are, they're for you. And Joseph will actually um, make this much more clear um, in, a, in a letter that he writes in April of 1833. So it's a couple years later. So what's happening is, there is a, a, a minister in the middle of, of nowhere in Vermont, in Benson, Vermont, which is that's literally it. anywhere in Vermont. That's yeah. right. You're not yeah. saying something. Yeah, it's when in, I say in the, middle of, in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, what I'm saying is throw a dart at yeah. a map of Vermont and there. Um, it, 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 it's it's a rural area of Vermont. I mean, even today, in Benson has fewer than a thousand people living in it. There might have been more people living in it back then than there were now. And um, there is a, a preacher there. His name's John Carter. 
Well, his brother, Jared Carter, is one of the early converts to the church. And he uh, goes and preaches to his brother, gives his brother a Book of Mormon. Well, in one of those miracle uh, conversions, I mean, we hear all about Sidney Rigdon's congregation. This one's even more miraculous. You know, John Carter starts preaching to his congregation about the Book of Mormon, and most of them convert. It's it's crazy. Wow. You have all of these people that were one time, you know, I, 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 I'm a Baptist one day, and now I'm a more, I mean, the whole congregation. Well, so, so uh, in the middle of nowhere then in Vermont in 1833, completely, you know, out of, out of the ordinary, you have this giant branch of members of the church, where most of the people living in this area, almost like they moved there, you know, uh, you have this large branch of the church in Vermont. Uh, John Carter's made the presiding elder. I mean, they don't they don't even call it that then. They don't have any branch presence then, but essentially he's the elder in charge. And he starts to have a problem. There's a, a woman by the near, uh, by there by the name of uh, Jane Sherwood who starts to receive revelations and starts to tell the whole congregation them. Well, at first, everyone's just all on board with this. Even John Carter is all kinds of excited about this. Like, oh... Wow, this is great. I mean, she's having revelations that Jesus really is the Christ and things like that. Well, sounds pretty good, right? And he's all on board. But then her revelations start to seem to go beyond what it is that Joseph revealed. And in point of fact, one of them seems to reveal when the whole congregation is supposed to move to Zion. Because Zion's already been established at that point. And Carter's not sure what to do because... Well, we all want to believe what she's saying, but it seems like the things she's saying are things that Joseph would be telling us. So Joseph writes uh, a letter in response to him, and that gives us this very clear understanding of how it works when it comes to um, when it comes to to revelation. Uh, he says, uh, "Your letter's just put into my hand." And I have carefully perused its contents and embraced this opportunity to answer it. We proceed to answer your question first concerning the labor in the region in which you live. We acquiesce in your feelings on this subject until the mouth of the Lord shall name it. Um, as it respects the vision you speak of, we do not consider ourselves bound to receive any revelation from any one man or woman without them being legally constituted and ordained to that authority and given sufficient proof of it. I will inform you that it's contrary to the economy of God for any member of the church or anyone to receive instruction for those in authority higher than themselves. Now, when it's saying the economy of God, today, when we use the word economy, it almost exclusively means, you know, dollars and cents and money and, and the things you, you know, study and teach uh, at the University of Utah. Um, but really what economy means, especially in the 19th century, is the, the, the way in which things are done. Right. So the economy of this podcast is you download it, you listen to the first two minutes, and then you you, you turn it off. Right. And you're like, I thought I had a comedian. Possibly there. smash your phone. Yeah, yeah smash your phone. Uh, like you know, they did with Hiram Page's Stone. Very similar. It's just like Hiram Page's Stone, and that's the end. Um, so that's the economy of this podcast. You, you download it, you listen to it, you're disgruntled, and you send emails. Um, uh, the. What, what Joseph is saying here is the economy of God 
right? It's contrary to the way God does things. It's contrary to the pattern God has established for someone to receive instruction for those in authority higher than themselves. And then he explains, therefore you will see the impropriety of giving heed to them. God isn't going to give a member of your congregation a revelation about when you're supposed to move design. If God's going to give that revelation, he's going to give it to you. Joseph goes on, though, because, again, as we talked about in the last podcast, personal revelation is essential. This isn't just if you feel like it. You have to have personal revelation. So he goes on to say, but if any have a vision or a visitation from a heavenly messenger, it must be for their own benefit and instruction. This is, Joseph is not saying that you can't have an angel appear to you. You, of course, can have revelation. You can dream dreams and, and, and receive revelation. An angel can absolutely speak to you. It's just that when that angel speaks to you, it's not going to be, let me give you a revelation about how the church is doing food storage wrong. Right? That, that's not how that's going to happen. Why? Because, as Joseph says, the fundamental principles, government, and doctrine of the church is invested in the keys of the kingdom. God has established a pattern whereby truth that we need to know will be received through his prophets and apostles. Now, uh, sometimes people get hung up on the fact that, well, the prophets used to teach certain things and now they don't anymore. So how do I know that what a prophet's teaching now is something I need to follow? First of all, the church has tried to clarify, look, not every statement that's ever been made by a prophet or an apostle necessarily constitutes the doctrine of the church. It, it just doesn't. Sometimes things are stated that represent a very well-meaning, uh, very well thought out, but personal opinion on the subject. I, I can think of an example from uh, the 19th century. Orson Hyde, who was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for decades. He's actually the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for quite some time um, before Brigham Young will reorganize the Quorum of the Twelve, and it will place John Taylor ahead of him in seniority, because Orson Hyde did leave the church for a little while, or leave the Quorum, at least he's, he's, he's disfellowshipped, and, and he's going to come back, and and so they, they restart seniority from when you come back, from when John Taylor comes up. So anyway, at the time, though, Orson Hyde's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he will on multiple occasions teach that Jesus was married in his earthly life. Now, I would guess that most members of the church would not consider that a quote-unquote doctrine of the church. You're not going to find, you know, tons of talks on it in on churchofjesuschrist.org. There's not a bunch of revelations surrounding it. You can understand why uh, Orson Hyde thought it very reasonable that Jesus was married. And you can understand why members today would want to believe that he was married. But that hasn't been revealed or taught as the doctrine of the church. It, it very well could have been that Jesus was married. And it very well could have not been that he was. But it's not the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church is consistently proclaimed by the, the prophet and the quorum of the Twelve Apostles collectively, not just by one single statement somewhere. In fact, I, I find that when, when people are trying to put together their own type of theology. You see this a lot with people that are doing, 
you know, the kind of doomsday type of thing, right? When they're trying to, you know, demonstrate to you that the second coming is going to be, you know, this weekend after breakfast. That, that That's the way they do it. They, they, they grab a statement from here and a statement from here and a statement from here, provide no context, and then smash them all together and say, aha, see, it's, you know, on June 14th that, you know, you know that, that that's that's when it's happening i i think it's safe to to say that active members of the church don't have to wonder what it is the doctrine of the church is the doctrine is whatever the church is teaching if you have to go back to an obscure talk from 1855 to prove what the doctrine and teachings of the church are well, then maybe that point that you're presenting is not exactly the doctrine and teaching of the church. So it's interesting. I was in a uh, in a stake training a couple of weeks ago, and in that in that training, kind of to the point that you're you're making here, um, wards and stakes and, and area presidencies they they want to have a, a an impact for good in in where it is that they're where it is that they're serving. And the instruction that we received from the stake that the stake had received um, in their stake training is from President Nelson, let's focus on the things that they're talking about right now. Because the things that are the most important to the church are the things that are being discussed right now. And that stands to reason, but kind of to your point of going back and finding some obscure Johnny Witso quote to kind of lead out what it is that our focus should be, well, our focus should be on... Yeah, I mean, you know, it pains me to say that because what I want to do as a historian is go back and find obscure <laughs> quotes good. and then write papers on them. Um, but but that's the reality is that there's 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 the history of the church and that's one thing. So it's it's a historical fact that... Orson Hyde spoke about Jesus being married, right? That, that, that happened. I have the documents, right, that that occurred. But the facts of the history of the church are not the same thing as what the church is currently teaching. And the church is the only entity that has the right to set its own doctrine. I mean... You see this a lot surrounding the Word of Wisdom, honestly. I'm sure in a future podcast we'll talk about the Word of Wisdom. Primarily, we'll just lament the fact that we can't drink. But the 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 um, the fact that the Word of Wisdom is a little bit obscure, right? That that it uses phrases like hot drinks and you know meat sparingly, and it doesn't you know it doesn't say you know you shall eat no more than four ounces of meat per day I mean, it doesn't say that right so it kind of it leaves something open for interpretation well it what that often does is it leads people to believe that they know what the actual interpretation is supposed to be I, i've heard people say well what god really meant by that was that we shouldn't be drinking anything hot at all well um, if that's what God really meant by it, then the person who'd be telling me that wouldn't be you. Well, I, boy, I remember growing up in a rural part of Idaho, there were certainly uh, even people within church leadership that took certain liberties as it related to what they interpreted word of wisdom with, you know, Diet Coke as an yep, example. Yeah, exactly. And, and 
And and the church has tried much, you know, a, a lot over the past few years to, to clarify, but even in Brigham Young's time, even in Brigham Young's time, people were already trying to find an excuse. Well, you know, it doesn't say tea and coffee. It just says hot drinks. And Brigham Young just rails on people over it. Is it like as if what we drank hot, if it didn't perfectly, absolutely, and totally refer to tea and coffee? What did we drink hot? We it was tea and coffee when we when we ate milk porridge as the example he uses that was food we didn't drink it down red hot the way we drank down our coffee the only thing we drank that was hot was tea and coffee and so that people are trying to you know they're 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 trying to push the boundaries of the revelation for their own personal reasons and 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 I think that's what's important I mean I'll, I'll very often have people say well. I just feel like that the church that that you know we focus far too much on the things we shouldn't do with the word of wisdom, and and not enough on the things we do. And, and I think that there's some truth to that, right? We we rarely talk about how we need to eat more healthy, right? As, as a result, right? We mainly talk about again, we mainly lament the fact that we can't have a Captain Morgan's and Coke. But uh, that the reality is, you know, whenever someone says that, like, well, I just think we need to focus more on that. The reality is there's a reason why you as a member of the church don't focus more on it. You can go back and read the last dozen general conference talks that reference the word of wisdom. None of them spend anything but a passing glance on eating meat sparingly or eating more grains. It might when they quote, they read that part of the revelation, but what do they expound upon? Not smoking not drinking tea and coffee, not using drugs. And so it's not actually, it's not odd that members don't, you know, view eating grains as more central to the word of wisdom. They're reflecting actually what it is that they're being taught and what's being emphasized. I guarantee you if tomorrow uh, President Nelson said, all right, you can only eat six ounces of meat per day, guess what every single one of us would be doing? We'd be going to Applebee's and checking on the site now is that i see that's an eight ounce steak is there any way you could make that a six ounce steak i mean we would we would do we would we if we were told to we would find a way to make it fit within the parameters and so all of that is to say that when when we're talking about the doctrines of the church they're a lot clearer than we often think they are or or sometimes that they're represented to us because it's what the church is teaching. What is the church teaching? How are they teaching it? What are they emphasizing? Those are the things that you, you need to believe. And if it's some obscure fact about, you know, as the, the church's one publication on it says, you know, where the Garden of Eden is, right, is, it doesn't have the same saving importance of the atonement of Jesus Christ, right? There's one that's interesting and there's one that's essential. And that there are some doctrines that are essential. There are others that are interesting, and then there's others that are simply just speculative, where maybe, or maybe not, but in either case, what matters are, are those things that are uh, not speculative. I wanted to, um, you know, kind of dovetail into my favorite chapter of the Book of Mormon is Helaman chapter 13, where Samuel is speaking to you know these these wicked people. I mean, these are supposed members of the church. These are people that have that, that are supposedly followers of Jesus. Um, yet these are the people that are so wicked that not only are they going to try to kill Samuel, 
their plan, this is the plan, their plan is to murder every believer who, who believes that, that, that the sign of Jesus' birth is going to come. This is not just a simple dispute. This is not just, oh, I, I, there's such a lack of civility. No, no, this isn't a lack of civility. They are going to murder every single person who believes Jesus is going to be born. That is, is, a, is a pretty degenerate civilization where it's not just disagreement. It's not just, oh, I'm, I'm fighting with you politically. I'm going to kill you because you believe something that I don't agree with. That's the kind of people that Samuel's preaching to. And as they try to kill him, as they stand on that wall, as he stands on that wall, uh, verse 24, he says, Yea, woe unto this people because of the time that has arrived that you do cast out the prophets and do mock them and cast stones at them and do slay them and do all manner of iniquity unto them, even as they did of old time. And when you talk, you say, if our days had been in the days of our fathers of old, we would not have slain the prophets. We would not have stoned them and cast them out. Behold, ye are worse than they. For as the Lord liveth, if a prophet come among you and declareth unto you the word of the Lord, which testifieth of your sins and iniquities, ye are angry with him, and cast him out, and seek all manner of ways to destroy him. Yea, ye will say that he is a false prophet, and that he is a sinner and of the devil, because he testifieth that your deeds are evil. It, it is a, as true a thing as could possibly be. And, and we see this today, like I said, we see this after every general conference. You only have to browse your social media feed to, to see that people today do mock the prophets and seek all manner of ways to destroy them to discredit them, to say that they are a false prophet. Well, he's clearly wrong about that. Or he's a sinner. I think he's a sinner. That's the reason why he's saying that. And why? Because he testifies that your deeds are evil. But behold, if a man shall come among you, shall say, do this, and there is no iniquity. Do that, and ye shall not suffer. Yea, he will say, walk after the pride of your own hearts. Yea, walk after the pride of your own eyes, and do whatsoever your heart desireth. And if a man shall come among you and say this, you will receive him and say that he is a prophet. I don't know that there is any greater prophetic statement in the Book of Mormon speaking to our day than verse 27. That if someone comes to you and says, this isn't a sin, there's nothing wrong with this. You can do whatever you want. When it says walk after the pride of your own hearts, walk after the pride of your own eyes, meaning do whatever you want. And he even says that, do whatsoever your heart desireth. Whatever someone wants to do, that's what's right. Whatever someone believes, that's what's right. When, when someone says that, then we hold them up and say, oh, what an amazing prophet. What, that How inspired they are. You will lift him up and you will give unto him of your substance and of your gold and of your silver and you will clothe him with costly apparel because he speaketh flattering words unto you and saith that all is well, then you will not find fault with him. It's stunning that one of the ways that people seek to discredit prophets is that the prophets are teaching things that are not accepted by the society at large. And yet... Let's just take a brief glance over all prophetic history. 
show me the prophet who everyone accepted. Show me the prophet that wasn't preaching things that most people rejected. Show me the prophet that wasn't teaching things that their words were not rejected by, by the majority of people. Even Jesus. Jesus has most people reject him. So if you find yourself listening to prophetic utterance today and completely discrediting it because it doesn't jive with your social your 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 social beliefs or your cultural beliefs or your political beliefs and then you seek to discredit it or seek all manner of ways to destroy him you are no different than those people because they did the same thing jesus uh presented the same uh problem to uh the people of his day that they build up the sepulchers to people like moses and abraham but reject jesus and want to destroy him well there's a greater than moses and a greater than abraham when jesus is there and and it's the lord himself so I, I, I will say this over and over again. I don't want this to become a catchphrase, but maybe it will. Uh, again, when you're a one-trick pony, you do it all the time. Um, but if, if prophets teach things that personally don't agree with your political, social, cultural, educational viewpoint, rather than immediately going to the offensive, rather than immediately attacking them, discrediting them. I hope that we can all learn to wait. I hope we can all learn, as Joseph said, we talked about in our last podcast, to be, to be patient. Because it is possible that they have revealed to them something that you don't know yet. You don't need a prophet to tell you to keep living in Jerusalem if you're Lehi and Laman and Lemuel. You are always going to stay living in Jerusalem. Of course, you're going to stay where your nice house is and where your nice your money is and where your societal riches are. It's a prophet like Lehi that tells you to get out of Jerusalem. Similarly with Jeremiah. You don't need a prophet to tell you that things are going to be fine. Don't worry about the Babylonians. You already thought that. Jeremiah who says if there was nothing left but sick men among the Babylonian Empire, Jerusalem would be destroyed because God had, had decreed it. So prophets are going to teach us things you know they're going to teach us things that often that we don't already believe. And so for your life as you're applying these things from church history from the scriptures, one of the things you can do is is to just be careful this to, to to realize that literally the worst way to determine whether or not a teaching is from God when a prophet speaks, the worst way is to say, do I already believe that? And if the answer is yes, well, then it must be a true teaching from God. And if the answer is no, well, then it's false. Because the whole point of having a prophet is to reveal things that, that we didn't already know, that we wouldn't believe otherwise except that they're being taught by a prophet of God. And hopefully as we as we continue to study the doctrine and covenants in church history, 
we can keep that in mind. God has called these prophets. And hopefully we are not doing the same thing that they did of old time, seeking all manner of ways to destroy them because what they teach isn't what we wanted to believe. So for any other questions that any listeners might have, they can go to questions at standardoftruthpodcast.com and submit those, and then we will look to create content from those questions as it takes us through the Doctrine and Covenants, through various parts of church history, and uh, through the next uh, several years. We're looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.